Um, a little history. Four years ago, this month, the president of the community center at the south end of our parking lot handed us the keys and the deed to that 100-year-old building. Now, immediately, I filed their gift in a folder in my mind, and I labeled that folder liability, time sucker, money pit. I deemed it good for nothing, maybe other than to be offered as a training exercise for the local fire department. Uh, For months, we talked and we talked and we deliberated and we prayed over what to do with that building. Well, here's what I saw. It had three roofs on it, none of which kept rainwater out. Uh, The water soaked and eventually collapsed the ceiling. Uh, Of course, that affected the condition of the floor. Um, The lead paint on the outside of the building, peeled off in sheets. Varieties of birds had pecked through the rotted siding, nesting in the walls of the building. But the most troubling feature, um, after decades of quote-unquote deferred maintenance, was that the footings that supported the west end of that structure had sunk into the dirt such that the south e- southwest end of the building had settled seven inches below grade. Now, personally, I, I saw no value in that structure. And sub- subsequently, I was opposed to putting one hour of time, one ounce of effort, Uh, not even one dollar into that albatross. And I made my views known. But all that changed. All that changed, not only in my heart, but in the hearts of a lot of people, when the Lord gave us a united vision of what that building could become. It was a year ago this month, that we opened that building up to the public after nine months of sweat and toil and concrete and rebar, paint, and a whole lot of creative problem solving. Only when we collectively saw value did we invest the three T's, time, treasure, and talent. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle said, what is honored in the land is cultivated there. Now I might substitute the word valued as a synonym for honored. What is valued in the land is cultivated there. Now it didn't matter who said it. I I believe all truth is is God's truth. That, That truth might come out of uh, the mouth of a donkey or out of a a preacher named Rob um, or out of the mouth of an uberly smart yet unredeemed philosopher. If we value the ground and we value what the ground can produce and how it can provide for a family, 
will cultivate the dirt and will cultivate the crops that come out of the dirt and will cultivate the fruit from the crops that come out of the dirt. What is valued in the land is going to be cultivated there. Now, as Christians, we say we honor God. We value him. We we value who he is. We value what he does. If we do indeed honor him, then we're going to pour the three T's into that relationship. Time, treasure, talent. Here's a few examples from Scripture of doing exactly that. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 15. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Romans chapter 12. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What is valued in the land is cultivated there. And I am going to cultivate by pouring the three T's, time, treasure, talent. Okay, let's, let's, let's take this idea and turn it around, 180 degrees. Let's look at this from God's point of view. What does God value? What does God cultivate? Think back to our exploration of Jesus' statement in John 15. He said, uh, verse 5 of chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. God's interested in producing fruit. He values, he cultivates spiritual fruit. Now, when we were in chapter 15 looking at uh, that particular text, uh, we talked about the fruit of, of, of praise. We talked about the fruit of gospel testimony. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit. There are many things we might identify as fruit to be cultivated by our Lord. From our text this morning in John 16, we see that the Lord is is focusing our attention on these two kinds of fruit that he seeks to cultivate, faith and peace. I titled this message, The Faith That Yields Peace. And here's my sermon in a, sense, in, in a sentence to capture both of these ideals. I've got places in your notes for you to fill in the blanks. The growth of faith yields the gift of peace. The growth of faith yields the gift of peace. I'm going to read from John 16, beginning at verse 25 
through the end of that chapter. This is the conclusion of Jesus' so-called upper room discourse. He is giving his last words to his men, and he is describing some of the things, namely faith and peace, that he highly values and seeks to cultivate in the life, lives, uh, lives of his men. Look with me at John 16, follow along as I read, beginning of verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and I have and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things, And have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each one to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Our text opens and closes with the same phrase. You find it in verse 25, then again in verse 33. It's like two pieces of bread that hold the contents of your sandwich together. Jesus says, verse 25, these things I have spoken to you. Then look down to verse 33. Same, same, same wording. These things I have spoken to you. In these uh, paragraphs, Jesus is talking about our growth of faith and his gift of peace. Now, in his, his desire to cultivate and grow our faith, Jesus says he, he, he wants us to know the Father, walk with the Father, uh, believe the Father, believe that he, the Son, came forth from the Father. In a word, Jesus wants to grow the faith of his men. And secondly, he knows the struggle of our souls. Earlier in this chapter, verse 6, Jesus says, Behold, I have said these things to you, uh, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And he says in verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He knows the struggle. He knows the limitations. He knows 
our weak frame. He knows how much weight our shoulders will bear. He acknowledges his imminent departure by death. And he says in verse 20 of this chapter, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. You will grieve. So, so, so Jesus knows that trial, tribulation, uh, trouble will, will find them. Nevertheless, in the dying and the resurrected Savior, they would have peace. He will gift them with peace. We're going to break apart my sermon in a sentence into two groups, and we'll, we'll look at each, each, uh, each point. Number one, the growth of faith. In verse 25, Jesus says, I've spoken to, to you in figurative language. We, we use figures of speech all the time. Heart is a rock, blind is a bat. The Lord is my shepherd. Um, if, if a figure of speech is overused, it becomes a cliche. Uh, but in the main, when we use a figure of speech, it brings clarity, it brings color, it brings beauty to our speech. Now, it goes without saying that some figures of speech are more easily grasped than others. Um, when Jesus spoke to the crowds, he very frequently spoke to them using the figure of speech that we call a parable. And in Matthew chapter 13, if you want to turn there with me, verse 10, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked this question. Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus gave this answer. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Verse 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. The parables sometimes brought um, not, not, not clarity, but confusion, uh, some head-scratching. Back in our text in John 16, the um, New American Standard translates uh, this one particular Greek word, figurative language. You'll notice in the footnote, if you have the NAS text, uh, it, it might also be translated proverbs or more generically, figures of speech. I find it interesting that the 1901 American Standard Version translates this Greek word, dark sayings. Uh, not dark as in evil, but dark as in veiled, um, cryptic, enigmatic, um, not a light of light, uh, difficult to understand kind of language. However, Jesus says, verse 25, last half of that verse, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, 
dark sayings, cryptic sayings. But I will tell you plainly of the Father. Now, throughout the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus is talking about the soon coming of the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to that coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, some seven weeks hence. And that, that particular time was a game changer in so many, many ways. At that time, that hour, that day, he uses that kind of language in verses 25 and 26. Um, the day of Pentecost, the, the day of the coming of the Spirit, God's people will understand God, the Father, his plan, specifically the plan of redemption, in ways they've never understood before. The veil will be lifted. The light will be turned on. The puzzle will be solved. So Jesus continues, verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Now let's pause there for just a minute because uh, this is is a bit head-scratching. Honestly, this this particular uh, set of words is is, uh, a bit dark. It's a a bit veiled. Let me me see if we can shine some light on this. Here in verse 26... Jesus is obviously talking about prayer. And he uses the phrase that is um, now common five times in the Upper Room Discourse do we find Jesus using the phrase, in my name. Okay, so he says, in that day you will ask in my name. He's talking about post-Pentecost when we have the, the, um, uh, the, the presence of uh, the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. In that day, you will ask in my name. I've labored the point uh, as we've looked at this phrase over uh, over the last um, number of weeks together. To pray in Jesus' name means that we pray in accordance with the character of Christ. It means that we, we pray according to his will, according to his ways. This phrase does not mean that we simply have a blank check and whatever we ask of the Lord, as long as we tag the end of our prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen, that we're going to get what we want. No. We, we, we pray in accordance with who Jesus is, in accordance with his will, in accordance with his way. But look at the next phrase in verse 26. Jesus says, I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Evidently, it was, it, it was true as a misunderstanding in Jesus' day, just as much as it is in ours, we have this thought of, well, as long as we use that phrase, in Jesus' name, um, as long as we, we, we use that, we, we have uh, some kind of guarantee that our prayers are going to be 
delivered to the Father. Jesus says, I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. As if Jesus is the mediary. Jesus is our go-between. Jesus is the one who takes our prayers, hand-delivers them, interprets them for us on our behalf to the Father. Now, the thinking of this kind of misunderstanding goes like this. The Father is purely a spirit being. He is not marked by physicality in any way. But Jesus is, and so are we. So if we pray in Jesus' name, meaning that we pray to Jesus as our go-between, and he's going to interpret, take uh, our prayer and deliver it to the Father— um, if, if, we, if we pray in his name, in that, and we mean that Jesus is the one that takes our requests to the Father, um, it's going to be more, um, we're going to get the results that we're looking for um, because Jesus is like us. He's going to translate it. Now, similarly, in the Roman Catholic Church, they teach that we are to pray to Mary uh, or to any number of, of saints as mediaries that are go-betweens between us and Jesus. They, they've taken the same idea um, and, and taken it a, another step further. Their thinking is, is, it goes like this. Well, well, Jesus is indeed human, just like we are. However, um, we need somebody like Mary, like the saints, who, who understand human weakness and human failures um, better than Jesus, because Jesus didn't have weakness. Jesus didn't fail. But Mary and other saints are, are just like us, so, so they soften our Lord's heart, and as, as they deliver our prayers to, to Jesus, we have a better chance of having our prayers heard and answered if, if we pray through uh, such a mediary. Well, this I- idea is nothing less than theological fiction. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach this um, this kind of, of prayer habits in, in any way. Now, to be fair, Scripture does talk about Jesus being our mediary, our intercessor, if you will. Let me, let me read you just a, a, a few uh, passages of Scripture. Uh, Romans 8, Jesus is at the right hand of of God, who also intercedes for us, Hebrews 7. Jesus is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 1 John 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 Timothy 2, 
For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So, so Scripture is clear. Jesus does have a mediatorial role. But he serves as our mediary, even including uh, his ministry of intercession with us, with particular attention to our redemption. That is, Scripture focuses Jesus' mediatorial work in the context of him redeeming his elect. has nothing to do with um, the mechanical handing of our prayer requests to the Father. Jesus wants us to be very well informed, verse 27, that the Father himself loves us. Why? Middle of verse 27. Because believers have loved Jesus and have believed that he came forth from the Father. Okay, so let me, let me, let me, let me step back here and, and give you an expanded, um, amplified rendering of verses 26 and 27 that, that have, have some, uh, some, some interpretive struggles for us. Okay, in that day, post-Pentecost, we will ask, we will make our requests to the Lord in Jesus' name, according to his will, according to his ways. And in that day, we are going to understand with clarity, with plainness, the redemptive work of God. We're, we're going to understand, post-Pentecost, that the Father is not distant, he's not obscure, he's not unknowable, quite the opposite. He wants to be known. And this is why Jesus stands before us. He wants us to know of the Father's great love. He values faith. He values a growing faith. He wants us to wrap our mind and our emotions and our will around the facts of his redemptive work. He wants us to put our complete confidence, our entire hope, our uh, unyielding trust. That doesn't make sense. Uh, Our complete trust. He wants to, to... um, he, he, he values these, these things. He, he wants us to, to be growing in our understanding that he, Jesus, came forth from the Father. Okay, that's a big paragraph to explain verses 26 and 27. But he wants us to grow in our faith. Now, verse 28, Jesus um, makes this amplification of what he He just stated in verse 27, namely, he wants us to um, believe that he came forth from the Father. Now, he's going to give us the the bigger picture. 
um, verse 28 by itself could be its own sermon series. It describes the work of Christ, his redemptive work, in four stages. Let me read the, the, uh, the verse as, as a whole, and then we'll come back and, and uh, look at it, albeit briefly. Jesus says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Now, in the way that I read it, you can discern those four stages. First, again, we're talking about Jesus' mission of redemption. It's all coming to a head at this point, but there are four distinct stages. First, Jesus says, I came forth from the Father. There is only one God. Both Father and Son are of one essence. There is one God, yet they are separate persons. Now, we are going to continue to struggle to mentally wrap our mind around that truth, but it is nevertheless true. That's what Scripture reveals. God is one, and yet there are three persons. The Father is one person. The Son is another person. They are united in this mission of redemption, but they have different roles. The Father remains in heaven. The Son has been sent from the Father as the expression of the Father. He is indeed himself deity. He is the one who is coming to accomplish redemption. So Jesus says, first of all, I came forth from the Father. That's past tense according to when he is speaking this to his disciples in John 16. I came forth from the Father. I have left the throne of heaven. We have to assume, uh, not, to, not assume, I meant, I meant the word affirm. We have to affirm. At this point, Jesus is saying, I came as deity. Phase number two. He came into the world. He was a spirit being prior to him uh, descending to earth. When he came to earth, he came as a man. We call it the incarnation. Uh, If you go to the store and you buy a can of chili, it might read chili con carne, meaning chili with meat. So when, when Jesus came, he came con carne, with, with meat. He came in flesh. In, uh, he was God in a bod. Phase three. Uh, well, let me say, say this first. Um, in that second phase of coming into the world and becoming incarnate, He had to live a perfect life in order that he might be worthy as a substitute. 
Well, that, that, that transpired, and that was where Jesus was at that time in John 16. He was, he was at the very end of phase two. Phase three, again from uh, verse 28, Jesus says, I am leaving the world. He was a volunteer. He was offering himself as a sacrifice a substitute for fallen man. He had demonstrated himself to be worthy as a substitute, and now the time was at hand when he would do that. He would offer up his his life. I am leaving the world. Um, in, In his death, he won, uh, earned, secured the redemption for all those who had been given to him by the Father. But if you notice the text uh, more specifically, it says in verse 28, again, we're talking about uh, phase three. Jesus says, I am leaving the world again. So there's more than simply his death that he's referring to. After his death, he was raised back to life, and he, he, um, uh, he, he came back. He was uh, making himself known. He appeared to hundreds of people um, at, at different times during that 40-year period of time prior to his ascension. But he he says, I I am leaving the world again. That word again marks the the beginning of the fourth phase where Jesus is affirming that um, he, he, he left the world at death and now after his resurrection he's going to leave the world again and go to the Father. This is referencing the ascension, the coronation, where Jesus will arrive in heaven and and the Father will give to him the name which is above every name, such that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And that title for Jesus, Lord, will reverberate through heaven uh, at his very presence. So descending from heaven... Phase one, living a sinless life as he became incarnate, phase two. He dies a substitutionary death, phase three, and he ascends back into heaven. It was then, at that ascension, at his coronation, redemption as a mission of the second person of the Trinity was accomplished. Everything was done. The high point, of course, was his low point, his death. But it wasn't finalized until his ascension and his assuming the throne at the right hand of the Father. This is the ground, this is the foundation of Christian faith. It's all boiled into this one verse in verse 28. Well, at this, verse 29, 
the disciples smiled broadly. They slapped each other on the back. They, they, they thought they got it all nailed down. Lo, they write, or they say, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figurative speech. They continue, now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came down from God. Well, this is at the end of verse 30. This is a a statement, a declaration of their faith as it has developed to this point. By this we believe that you came down. From God. Okay, I, I, by the way, I am, am on the second page of your notes if you want to continue to follow along with me. Um, they have a, a, a confidence that Jesus is, um, he is divine. He did come indeed from heaven, but their, their, their confidence was incomplete. It was faulty in that sense. Jesus Jesus uh, answers them in verse 31. Do you now believe? Question mark. In the Greek text, uh, Jesus' answer in verse 31 consists of just two words. The word translated now and the verse, and the word, uh, the phrase uh, translated you believe. In the, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the original language, there are no punctuation marks like we normally have in English. So in a place like this, uh, it, it's an interpretive decision to put a question mark there. It can also be a, a statement. You, you, we have to glean from the context, is this a statement or is this a question? And, um, uh, and, and honestly, there's, there's a bit of ambiguity here. The question in verse 32, as, as it is, is uh, recorded for us in the New American Standard Text, uh, the, the, the question um, leads us to think that that maybe this is a rebuke by Jesus to his men. Okay, they, they, finally, they finally came to the conclusion, you came from God. Well, as we put that in the context of verse 28, they are affirming phase one of the totality of Jesus' Um, redemptive mission. And if this is a question in verse 31, it might read this way. Do you now believe? As if Jesus is rebuking his men to say, guys, I have been with you for three years, and now you're just getting point one or, or phase one nailed down? You... You, you haven't grasped the rest of it yet? I don't think that Jesus is rebuking his men this way. I think it better to understand verse 31, not as a question, but as a statement. 
Now you believe. Well, how, how are we to inflect that, those words? What is Jesus saying here? Well, I think we have to, we, we have, to have um, what follows to, um, to, to, to fully grasp um, what, what Jesus means. But, but let, me, let me say this first. In chapter 17, verse 8, Jesus says, uh, now this is part of his prayer to the Father that he utters uh, at, the, at, the, at the tail end of his, his upper room discourse. This is this, what we find in verse 17 is, is not his Gethsemane prayer. He's not in Gethsemane yet. But in, in the presence of his men, he bows in prayer. It's, it's like, you know, when, you, when you're with some close friends and you're going to be departing for, for a period of time, you, you might huddle together, put your arms around each other, and, and pray together. Well, that's kind of what, what, we, what we have here. Uh, Jesus isn't praying um, uh, for his, his men. He, he's simply praying to the Father, uh, and, and his men are eavesdropping, if you will. And in verse 8, he says, to the Father, the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So Jesus is affirming, okay, these guys get phase one. They understand that I, part of the Trinity, have come down from heaven, sent forth by the Father for a specific, a redemptive mission. They, they get that. There are parts that they don't yet understand, and they're going to need the Holy Spirit to guide them and instruct them to have a, a, a more full, complete understanding of what this redemptive mission in, entails, but they get this. All right. Suffice it to say that Jesus is interested to grow their faith. Point number two, the gift of peace So um, Jesus is continuing his discussion with these men, and he, he wants them to believe. Now you believe, but he's, uh, he's expanding that. And he says in verse 32, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come, meaning it's upon you, gentlemen. You are going to be scattered, each of you to his own home, and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Let me pause here for just a minute. Within moments, Jesus is going to walk with his men to an olive grove called Gethsemane, and he's going to pray with them uh, uh, he's going to pray to the Father there with them. They're going to fall asleep repeatedly. But, but eventually, that night, just, just hours away from, from where they're standing here in chapter 16, 
there's going to be um, a procession led by none other than Judas Iscariot. He's going to have soldiers. He's going to have religious leaders in his train. They're going to, they're going to be armed with torches and with swords. They're going to find Jesus in the garden, and they're going to arrest him. And they are, they're going to run. They're going to be scattered like sparks from fireworks. And physically, Jesus will be alone. Now later we learn that Peter and John lurked in the shadows. They try to to learn of Jesus' fate. And still later, uh, we learn that the disciples huddled together, albeit in great fear, uh, this conversation that Jesus has with his men in John 6, 16 took place on Thursday night. Maybe, maybe the very first hour of Friday night, but probably uh, fr- Friday morning, but, but probably Thursday night. When we get to chapter 20 in John's Gospel, the calendar reads Sunday. And we know what happens on Sunday morning. The resurrection takes place. Uh, In chapter 20, verse 19, we read these words. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, uh, held up, and Jesus came, stood in their midst, and said to them, Peace be to you. Verse 20. And when when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. There's so much that these disciples did not yet know. They had the Holy Spirit yet. uh, and, And the fullness of their understanding of Jesus' mediatorial role as the Redeemer uh, that wouldn't, it, it wouldn't fully make sense. The, the, the veil wouldn't be lifted, the light wouldn't be, be turned on uh, and, until um, after the, the Spirit came. So for now, they're, they, they're able to em, embrace phase one of Jesus' redemptive mission, but there's lots that they didn't understand. And at this point, having witnessed Jesus' death, they're cowering in fear. Jesus' response to his men as he meets with them is this, peace be with you. And he says it twice, peace be with you. Back in our text, chapter 16, Jesus says, these things, verse 33, I have spoken to you so that in me you may have Peace. Is this kind of peace uh, something that uh, the disciples were able to generate? No. All they were able to generate was fear. They scattered from Jesus when he was arrested, 
They huddled after his death together out of abject fear. No, they, they, they weren't able to find peace. Well, if you look back at John chapter 14, still upper room discourse, he, he spoke these words uh, just a handful of minutes prior to, what, what he, to our text. And in chapter 14, verse 27, uh, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This peace... Something that the world does not understand is something that Jesus gifts to his men. This is something that I want to give to you. How is it that we come to this point? Because there's, there is this overwhelming awareness that God is in control of everything. Every aspect of his redemptive work is marked, known, identified, choreographed. Nothing escapes his notice. He sees it all. He ordains it all in order to win our redemption. So he says, I I am going to gift you with a confidence that I am in control. As I am at peace in the midst of this turmoil, this trouble, this tribulation, so I give to you. When we were here in John chapter 14, a number of weeks ago, I I made a distinction between peace with God and the peace with God. Of God. Peace with God is the result of the monergistic divine act of justification. When the Father justifies a sinner, when the Holy Spirit applies the perfect finished work of Christ to that sinner's account, that sinner is forgiven, reconciled with God. The, the, the hostility, the, the enmity with God is removed. And so we read in Romans chapter 5, beginning of that chapter, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. No longer is Jesus our enemy. No longer are we hostile toward God or is God hostile toward us because of the work of Christ applied to us. That's the peace with God. What we are talking about now, John 14, John 16, even what, 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 what the Lord gave to his disciples uh, the evening of his resurrection, John 20, is the peace of God. 
This, too, is a gift. It is the result of our confident trust in God's sovereignty uh, no matter what, no matter the circumstances. Let me give you an example. John, in, uh, in Acts chapter 16, the Holy Spirit specifically directed Paul and his company to um, uh, leave Asia Minor and go into another continent, the European continent, and specifically to the city of Philippi. There they met with all kinds of trial, tribulation, trouble, and we read in uh, uh, chapter 16, verse 22, that a crowd rose up in that city together against Paul and company. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So here they were, Paul and Silas, having been beaten. Were they, they, were, were they bloody? Don't know. Did they have extremities uh, or, or, or bones in their torso broken? We don't know. Entirely possible. in this physically broken condition, shackled in the inner prison, meaning that they were, that they were uh, escape risks. They started praying, singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners around them were listening. Well, they were, they were listening, certainly, to what they were praying and what they were singing, but, but listening between the lines, they were hearing these two men experiencing the peace of God. A, a, a confidence in God's sovereign authority over their lives, over their circumstances. Now, this didn't, this didn't go unnoticed by uh, the prisoners uh, nor by the people that came to faith because of Paul and Silas's preaching of the gospel. When, when Paul was away from that Philippian church, he wrote them, and he wrote these well-known words. Chapter 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. People in the world have, have, have no concept of of what this is or, or uh, how to receive this gift. 
that peace, the peace of God, will stand as a sentry over the gate of your heart. A sentry standing at a city gate is there to guard it, to to protect it. So the peace of God watches over us to guard and to protect. Back to our text, chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Trial, trouble, difficulty, it will find you. (laughs) But take courage, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. it's, It's... when Jesus speaks these words, it's, it's as though he is saying it is a, a fait accompli. It, it is an accomplished fact. I have already overcome the world. We're still in phase two of his redemptive mission. We're not yet at phase three. That's just hours away. But we're still phase two, and yet Jesus says, it's done. I have overcome. It is, it, it, it is so certain of being absolutely accomplished, finished, done. If you look back, back with me at, at, at chapter 12, uh, verse, verse 31, uh, Jesus uh, speaks uh, prophetically here. He says, Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. It is so certain. It is so absolute. There there is no hesitation. There There is no question that it will be fulfilled in the way that Jesus expected. It's done. Bank on it. In his commentary on this particular text, D.A. Carson says this, quote, Jesus' point is that by his death, he has made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. The decisive battle has been waged and won The world continues its wretched attacks, but those who are in Christ share the victory he has won. They cannot be harmed by the world's evil, and they know who triumphs in the end. From this, they take heart and begin to share his peace. Unquote. The growth of faith yields the gift of peace. These are things that the Lord eagerly desires to cultivate in the hearts and lives of his people. What is honored, what is valued in the land will be cultivated there. This is what the Lord seeks to cultivate. And he invests his three T's right here. His time, his treasure, his talent. Now let's 
let's, let's turn this whole idea back around where we started. Let's turn it 180 degrees again and, 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 and ask the question, what is it that you value? What is it that you, you honor? That's where you are going to invest your three T's. Your time, your treasure, your talent. Sir James Mackintosh was a 19th century Scottish jurist and politician. Listen to what he said. Brief sentence. It is right to be contented with what we have, comma, never with what we are. It is right, it's good, it's appropriate to be content with what we have, but never with what we are. We can't stop here. We are, we are a, a people of faith, and faith does not come to us fully grown, fully mature. A growing faith is what we must value. If we do, we will invest our three T's here to grow our faith. And as that faith grows, we will see the fruit. We will see what yields from it, namely, the gift of the Lord's peace. He gives that to his people who have a growing confidence that he is the sovereign. That's our growing faith, that he is fully in control of all things. No trial, no trouble, no tribulation catches him by surprise. Neither should it catch us by surprise. Let's pray. Father, grow and strengthen our faith. Cause us to be unswerving in our understanding, in our recollection that you alone are sovereign. You have a plan. That plan of redemption is clearly marked, clearly outlined. You have accomplished it with absolute precision. And for those who have put their faith and trust in you, that work of redemption is applied us no matter what find us to be faithful growing in faith enjoying the peace that you give to us in the name of the Savior Amen